0: Welcome back to the pod, everybody. This one requires very little introduction. It's built. It's an episode designed for those of you, and I know it's a very large percentage who are avid readers. And for the rest of you who are looking to find some interesting new reads to read more in the coming year, we've done some work on your behalf. It's the return of a regular series where we review our favorite books of the last year. And we didn't do one last year, so we're just going to call this one our favorite books of the pandemic and in order to create this episode we've enlisted the help of a much requested and returning guest
1: my name is kyla gardner and i'm an author and writer the last time i was on the show would have been december 2019 um we unfortunately talked about the dark side of travel careful what you wish for <laughs> um i'm still running my nonfiction Kindle business. So those are kind of like how to self help books. And those have been paying my bills for the last four or five years. But I've always dreamed of being a fiction author. So last time we spoke, I was probably working on Guru, which is this digital nomad thriller that is currently sitting in the top drawer of my desk.
0: <laughs> I bet you could sell it.
1: <laughs>
0: a listener of the show would pay you money for that draft. Right, There's no question right. about it.
1: I'm still hopeful that one day I'll dust it off and get it out there. But so I've been focused on writing suspense fiction, which is like domestic psychological thrillers, kind of like a gone girl type thing. So I've written three of those in the past year. Um, and that's been going really well. And my pen name is Kyla Sharp.
0: And I got one right here on my desk, The Lies She Sold. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that business model works. What's the game plan for folks who want to write fiction? It sounds like you're making it work. Like this is going to be this is what you do for business. I think a lot of people think being a fiction author is about knocking it out of the park, getting lucky, and you're one in a thousand people, but it doesn't seem like that's your approach.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the trad publishing model, um, and that's getting less and less common as those publishing houses shrink and have less money and are really just banking on like one Oprah book club book per year, and everybody else kind of gets forgotten, gets no marketing budget. Um, So self-publishing has really changed all of that, and there's so many people making so much money from fiction. Obviously, anyone can self-publish, so it has a bad rap, and there's a lot of junk out there as well. But... Sometimes you can't tell the quality difference because people hire professional editors, they get professional cover designers, they run it through their readers to make sure everything is makes sense and they don't have typos. And then they self publish it and they get 70% of those royalties from Amazon. Instead of trad publishing, you have to pay back your advance and you might be getting like 5%.
0: What does it take to make six figures writing fiction in a self-publishing model?
1: Definitely writing fast. I think that's the majority of people making good money is they're not writing a book every five years. It's more like maybe three to 10 per year, depending on the genre. But if someone buys one of your books and they like it, they'll buy everything you've written. So you really want to start building up that backlist. And then that's how you're making um, that scalable money.
0: And is 100% of your income through book sales?
1: just books yeah i've heard of some people who do uh like merchandise as well through etsy t-shirts or mugs or things like that um but yeah mostly books
0: well congratulations for making the dream uh, come true in your (laughs) case pretty amazing um we've always been a really bookish podcast books inspired the tmba and One of our traditions is to come on and talk about our favorite books of the past year. Uh, we skipped last year, so today we're going to do our favorite books of the pandemic. We each brought five, but I'm assuming we're going to drop extras as we go along. So I'll defer to you, Kyla, to get us kicked off. Um, before you jump into your list of five books, I'm wondering if, if you could describe your reading habits through the pandemic and if anything changed about them or you know any kind of like backstories to how you were reading these books that you really enjoyed.
1: So before the pandemic, I was a nomad. That meant mostly reading on my Kindle, which will do. I don't mind it, but I don't love it. So getting settled here in Melbourne, Australia, I have so much loved getting back into the library because I love like checking out 20 books, but then I also don't have to store those books when I'm done. I can just give them back. So I've been reading a ton of paperback books over the pandemic and for we were in and out of so many lockdowns as everywhere was. So for a while I had to do kind of like you call them, you reserve a book, you go click and collect it. I love paper books, so I've really enjoyed that. And then I think just being stuck at home, I've been reading a lot. So what about you?
0: I wrote down a couple things. Uh, the first is, yeah, I've been I've been reading real books. My Kindle has been out of batteries for six months <laughs> and I don't care. I don't have a bookshelf. I have stacks like around the room. I'm, I'm surrounded by stacks of books. I really like that. I've used the pandemics. Typically my reading style, I'll call it like um, cheap at home master's levels, deep dives. So I'll like find a topic or an author and I'll just buy or get everything and just kind of graze. I've been really quick to like get rid of books that are supposedly good, like. I read The Psychology of Money, I read The Beginning of Infinity, like a lot of these kind of, and I was just like, nah, that's not my thing. I even remember calling up our mutual friend Taylor Pearson, like in chapter four of The Beginning of Infinity, which people in Silicon Valley are raving about right now. And I was like,
1: I don't know what this book is. What's the, it's just like
0: meme right now. It's like, it's a heady book that is supposed to like, you know, enlighten you to the true nature of the universe, and then you can build a good startup like Naval. It's like meme right now. It's like, it's a heady book that is supposed to like, you know, enlighten you to the the true nature of the universe, and then you can build a good startup like Naval. And, and so then I was you can like, go to this
1: part up, right? That's the point of reaching nirvana, yeah,
0: one hundred percent. So I picked this book up, and I'm, you know, I'm going to get through it, you know. And I call Taylor Pearson on chapter four, and I'm like, "Do you think it's okay if I just put this book down?" Because I'm pretty sure I'm not picking up what's laying down. And he actually agreed with me, so it's kind of cool. Um, actually, a few of the books I'm going to share today were Taylor Pearson recommendations. Another regular guest on the show. Uh, Just as an overview, some of the deep dives I went on during the pandemic were golf, pandemics, long-term relationships, business management, chess, crypto, and talk therapy. So I'm going to try to pull out a few different books, my favorites from these categories. Also the final thing I'll mention is business books still suck. Like Every time we do this, we're like, why aren't there more business books on this list? I tried. I looked at all the top 10 lists. They're not that good. My business book that I'm going to talk about today is not a business book at all. And we'll see what we mean, what I mean by when we get to that. I also think a lot of the best content in the business world these days is showing up on Twitter, in forums, and in blog posts. And yeah, it's just not showing up in these books lists. A lot of the best ones we've covered in the rereadables and in previous episodes, so we'll link to all those. A lot of the books that I'm going to mention, I listen to on Audible. I think that Audible is becoming a larger percentage of my overall reading habits. And I'm not 100% sure of why that's the case. I just think it's convenient. Most books have Audible versions now. I think that might be part of it. Like A lot of the books I used to read, like you could only get them in Kindle or paperback. Now it seems like authors are going to the extra mile to make that audiobook because it does seem to be a really important part of the marketplace now. All right. So um, before you list your first book, was there any methodology that you used to select your favorite books of the last two years?
1: Um, No methodology, but I think in terms of themes, I feel like definitely time was a theme. Like, what is the value of time? Just having so much more of it on my hands. Um, (laughs) Like, what do you do when your life is kind of thrown into chaos and the unexpected? And then also just some good old-fashioned, like, Cons and deception and mystery stories.
0: Nice. Well, let's hear about it. I'm excited to to fill out my library.
1: all right. So my first book is called Bitcoin Widow on brand. Got some crypto in there. Wow. This is a memoir by the Canadian Jennifer Robertson. And I would say this isn't so much a book that can be enjoyed on its own, but you kind of have to view it as a primary text in a larger, mystery so for some background jennifer robertson was married to gerald cotton who was the founder of canada's largest bitcoin exchange called quadriga cx and in 2018 he mysteriously died in india and with that all of the 200 million dollars of his customers money disappeared so People think he didn't die. They think Jennifer Roberts and his wife was in on it. There have been so many documentaries and podcasts revealing this mystery and all the twists and turns that have been really good. I listened to Exit Scam. There's also A Death in Cryptoland. There's some docos. I'm pretty sure Netflix is making a documentary about this for later this year, so then it will be everywhere. So this definitely was a scam and Gerald Cotton He had created Ponzi schemes on the internet since he was like 15. And he had pulled a ton of exit scams where he, the company shut down and he disappeared with everyone's money. So people thought there's no way his wife isn't in on this. She was there in India when he died. She was traveling around the world with him on their private jet, their huge yacht and staying in the nicest hotels in the world. Like there's no way. So she's never spoken to the media. She's been this kind of quiet and suspicious character throughout this whole thing. And this memoir is her finally telling her side of it, which is really fascinating to hear, because when you come at it from the side of the conspiracy theorists and these podcasts, you really see any little detail like, oh, she changed her name a couple times. That's really mysterious. But then in her book, she says, well, this is actually why I did it, and it's just kind of boring and not that interesting. And there's so many things like that. So it's just really interesting to hear her side and then also how she went through this of, Her husband mysteriously dies when they're like 30 years old in India all of a sudden. Then she finds out he's been running this huge scam. Then she's pulled into it as people think she was in on it and he's really alive and she's hiding the secrets. The courts take everything from her and then she's living in her parents' attic again with no money. So it's just, it's a really fascinating perspective to see those two sides of this is a crazy conspiracy versus I had no idea and these are just some like boring coincidences from my side
0: it sounds amazing and it does feel like with the rise of narrative podcasting like every production company wants to get their hands on a story like this during the pandemic i also listened to a bunch of these sort of intrigue thriller mystery stuff and absolutely awesome so did you do it
1: (laughs) i don't know you'll have to decide for yourself
0: (laughs) So immediately after the pandemic uh, started, I started reading books about like the Spanish flu and doomsday kind of scenarios and stuff. And everybody has like sort of a memory. It reminds me, you know, of when my parents and grandparents would talk about the JFK assassination or 9-11 when I was in university. And in this case, I do remember these surreal moments of I was driving across the desert near big bend national park. So if you can imagine these sort of like epic expanses with these jagged mountains and there's no civilization out there and I'm listening to the BBC world report, talk about this global pandemic. And I was living in my own movie scene. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Everybody has that kind of memory and it was very stark for me. So I came home from this camping trip and started kind of getting my hand on a bunch of books. And one that kind of sticks out to me, there was a lot of informational books about the Spanish influenza that were very interesting. But there was this fictional account called One Second After, and it's by William Forschen. The setup is that there is a an electromagnetic pulse attack, which basically is an attack that shuts down the electricity, uh, hypothetically, in a country. The idea is, well, what would happen one second after? And then what would happen the next day? And what would be the first things that start to break down in society? And we all sort of saw the beginnings of that with, hey, there's no food in the grocery store. That's a thing. Like, I've got enough food at home, but I'm concerned. And we were all sort of playing these scenarios forward. And actually, fast forward to the next year in Austin, Texas, and we had an ice storm that was so severe that Austinites finally ate all their COVID stashes. Everybody went out and got like a bunch of black beans and stuff. We all ate that stuff. I have friends who didn't have power for seven days and have water for seven days. And we were very close to this scenario where Texans were going to take to the streets and start looting stores. You could feel it in the streets. It was very close. And since March, 2020, the world has been much more interested in disaster response. Prepping, like all these topics are really hot. But one of the interesting conclusions, I think, of this book, One Second After, which is a book that has its problems, but it's American centric. Interesting in that the conclusion isn't to be really well prepared on your homestead with like a bomb shelter. The conclusion is that you need to understand tribes and leadership and hierarchies because a lot of The fact that we can just go to a grocery store and get whatever we want hides over the fact that at the core we are people who require leadership we require togetherness in order to face challenges and just because you have a lot of guns and ammunition doesn't mean you can mow down 25 people who band (laughs) together to come for your resources so if you're interested in scenarios about what might happen if society were to break down i recommend one second after
1: that reminds me of Is it The Stand by Stephen King? Is that his pandemic apocalyptic one?
0: It's a great book. It might have even been in one of these episodes. Uh, Right. (laughs) For me, what gets my goat is like that moment, like in, what's that uh, zombie movie? uh,
1: 28 um, Days Later?
0: That's it, 28 days later. So there you go, one second after, 28 days later. Even like uh, this author has a sequel that's like one year after and the final day, um, which I just bought today actually as I was revisiting my favorite books of the last two years. I just love that scenario of if you take away the veneer of the accepted short-term truths that we've all agreed to, like what's at the core of society? And I think that the pandemic inspired the mainstream society to ask those questions. We're seeing it with the great resignation. You're seeing it with a mass of people retiring early, reevaluating works place in their lives. Some of the things that the digital nomad community was a little bit early to, maybe for different reasons. It's kind of interesting to see society sort of take up those same questions en masse.
1: I feel like uh, my next book kind of ties into that question of what's important What do you want to spend your time on? Are you wasting your life in an office job? And that's (laughs) 4,000 weeks. This is a sort of self-help book by British journalist Oliver Berkman. And on our first books episode, I recommended The Antidote by him. So I've been looking forward to this book for a few years. And Berkman always has these offbeat, skeptical takes on self-help. So 4,000 weeks basically equates to how many weeks you get if you live the average 80-year lifespan. And the subtitle for this book is Time Management for Mortals. So this isn't really like a how to or an inbox zero or like um, time boxing. Yeah, time boxing. So it's not about that. It's about taking a step back and kind of looking at why are we so obsessed with productivity and taking a philosophical approach to it? Like, are you doing the right thing by using these productivity hacks or are you not paying attention to actually what you need to be getting done? So he says that facing our mortality, basically, you won't accomplish everything you want to do. You have to choose. You have to give up a lot of your ambitions and be okay with that. But there is a lot of freedom that comes with that. You don't have to finish all those Udacity courses that you bought. It'll be okay.
0: <laughs> I'm curious, is there any other conclusions he comes to? That's a, I love the antidote, by the way. That's one of the books. Every year I buy a few of the books that you mention, and that's the one that, that stuck with me is fascinating. What other conclusions does he come to?
1: Um, he says that we're basically, we see ourselves as outside of time and it's just a resource that we have that we can, if we could only figure out how to perfectly manage it, we could perfectly manage our lives. But he says we're not separate from time. We are all just moving forward through time as these meat sacks and we can't <laughs> control it. It's, it's totally out of our control and accepting that. Yeah, it gives you a little less pressure of this is just like a resource you can harvest. He also talks about how people, before clocks were invented, they were more task oriented and like you'd just be working in the field and you didn't have this conception of Oh, I'm going to work in the fields like five more years, and then I'm going to retire. And I just need to get this. I just need to like harvest this wheat. And then I'm done for the season. It was just like very cyclical of you just you're in the moment and the seasons keep repeating, the tasks keep repeating, and you're just comfortable kind of existing in that time. One more anecdote. He has a chapter called The Loneliness of the Digital Nomad. Wow. Um, where he explains that time is a network good. So that means that it's not only more valuable the more you have of it, but the more others have of it, like a telephone. If you had a telephone and no one else you knew did, it'd be kind of worthless. And he says time works in a similar fashion. And he points out this example of in the Soviet Union, to get more productivity out of workers, they created a five-day week. So it would be four days of work, one day off. and But everybody had a different week, so nothing ever had to shut down. But it destroyed people's lives because they would never see their friends if they weren't on the same week. And like husbands and wives wouldn't see each other. Kids had a different school week. And it just like destroyed the social fabric. So as entrepreneurs and digital nomads, I think we all come to this place where we're like, okay, I've really enjoyed this time freedom on my own. But then you look back to, like your friends and family who don't have that time freedom and you start saying, okay, how can I give, get them to have more time freedom so we can share it together.
0: If you need help getting control of your email inbox, this is for you. That's right, this episode is brought to you by the team at mailmanhq.com. It's a Gmail plugin that lets you decide when and what emails land in your inbox. Many of our listeners spend a huge portion of their days inside of their inbox, and if you're one of them, pay close attention to the next 30 seconds. See, Mailman allows you to set up your own emailing schedule on both your personal and work Gmail accounts, such that all incoming emails are collected and delivered to your inbox as per the schedule you set up that's in batches so nothing drops in between. Now, what about those urgent emails? Don't worry. Mailman lets you configure your VIPs so their emails will land in your inbox immediately so you can respond and make progress in your business. And there's so much more too. So get a defender and an ally in your inbox. Get Mailman. Sign up for a free account over at mailmanhq.com slash tropicalmba. If you use that link and decide to upgrade to a paid plan, you'll get 30% off your first year via this link. So here it is again, mailmanhq.com slash Tropical MBA. Thanks to the team at Mailman HQ for sponsoring the show. Go give them a try. Give them a look. Get ahead on your inbox. Again, that's mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. Let's talk about time for my next book. Um, If we want to talk about time anxiety, uh, one of the most impressive books that I've read in the past two years was a book by Neil Stevenson. Named, it's called Cryptonomicon. Uh, and this book is like digital nomad adjacent as well. Uh, there's a technology company. They're going to Manila. All of a sudden, there's Japanese gold and Nazi gold, and there's bitcoins, but it's not quite called that yet. Uh, it is an incredibly prescient novel, and it's dazzling in a few different ways. The first is that Neil Stevenson, for all his shortcomings as a writer, is a true genius in terms of the ways he speaks about running a company, for example, you you got to assume this guy must have run a company. And then talking about like cryptocurrency before it existed, like very prescient in that sense, and it plays a big role in the narrative. And then just simply tapping into the true mysteries of World War II gold booty and treasure hunting and uh, smart people in tech doing dumb things. Um, and it's absolute toward a force of seeing the future and trying to get a piece of it. And I think that's a big part of being an entrepreneur and having a great time while you're doing it. Uh, plenty of adventures along the way. Cryptonomicon really stuck out at me as just a dazzling, prescient novel and a really fun time.
1: Yeah, I think we've all definitely been questioning the uh, money systems in the world the last two years and exactly uh, how those are working and who's in control of those.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Cryptonomicon was published in 1999. So I hadn't even graduated high school yet. And uh, Neil Stevenson already saw it as an inevitability that cryptography would be an absolutely critical technology. And essentially, the, the core narrative in the book is following the history of cryptography. So the founder of cryptography, Alan Turing, is a character in the book. And the reason the World War II gold is part of the narrative is that intercepting and decoding communications between the combatants was a critical innovation that led to the Allies being able to win the war. That's the narrative in the novel but also is the technology that we're going to build the future on top of. So following that uh, technology throughout the book, and uh, it's just utterly fascinating and really cool. And you cannot believe this guy saw all this in 1999. So very cool.
1: Love a good fiction recommendation. I've got a novel for my next one as well. The Glass Kingdom by Lawrence Osborne. He's a British novelist and travel writer, and he's often called the modern day Graham Green, who's known uh, most famously for the quiet American in uh, Saigon, Vietnam. So the Glass Kingdom takes place in Bangkok and the Glass Kingdom itself is this huge aging, decaying condo building, the type that you see all over the city where they were in their prime quite a while ago, but now they could really use a good power washing. But they definitely draw in these strange characters who are in Bangkok for the longer term. Um, I was one of those people for a while, so no, no judgment.
0: On the lamb, as Lawrence would say, yeah.
1: <laughs> right on the lamb. So it uh, the novel follows an American woman who's uh, absconded with stolen money. She's hiding out. She's on the lamb. She meets other expats on the lamb, a mysterious Thai woman as well, who she befriends. And the actual plot of the book is kind of meandering, not like a super tight crime plot. It's a bit mysterious. Um, But the best part of the book is the atmosphere. Osborne is also called a master of atmosphere. And reading this book during the pandemic, I was really missing Bangkok. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. And Like escaping into this book is you're just dropped directly in the city of Bangkok and the way he has those smells of like the fresh monsoon. He talks about the geckos and monitor lizards that are crawling all around this condo building. There's political unrest in the streets, constant construction. And he also just captures so well the type of expats who live in Bangkok, but also uh, the Thai people as well. So it's just a really beautiful book in terms of setting.
0: Absolutely love Lawrence Osborne. I've read a bunch of his books, and you can even watch him on YouTube. He'll, he's on like some food TV shows and stuff. He's like a, a long-term kind of linen suit-wearing expat in the style of Graham Greene. And uh, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up uh, him and that book. He also has a, a lot of wonderful essays and articles online that you can can read about Lawrence Osborne. Absolutely fantastic. All right. Uh, My next book is a self-help book. So one of my mini master's thesis during the pandemic is I was single when the pandemic started and I was like, ah, pre-pandemic, good decision. Post-pandemic in a crappy apartment in Austin, terrible decision. So I was like, I'm going to go to talk therapy, figure out why my past relationships are gone and they're no longer here. And also just learn about what the smartest people that have written books on the topic have to say about having quality, long-term relationships. And one of the ones that really stuck out to me was by a couple, and it turns out they're quite famous for their approach. The book is called Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples, the third edition, and is narrated by the authors. Really wonderful book that combines a lot of the principles that I learned in talk therapy about getting in touch with your emotions, building a lexicon around how you're feeling rather than just girding over everything with ideas and what you think all the time, but really giving space for how you feel. A concept that is really new to me and I had to learn a lot about this and then how all that plays out in the context of a long-term relationship like what your attachment style is or how you communicate what your communication styles is and how we often misinterpret what our partner is saying because of previous experiences that we haven't fully dealt with. And so if you're sometimes feeling bewildered or confused in a long-term relationship, like why am I feeling this way, even though the topic isn't that big of a deal or why are they overreacting to something that I don't think is a big deal? It's these sorts of books that have helped me see to the bottom of some of those things and it's an ongoing process. But this book by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples, really stood out to me. Very nice. Do you want to mention that you got married on the show?
1: (laughs) I don't need any relationship books because I got married. So um good for you. <laughs> for the um, rest of us, well,
0: we're reading the self-help books. <laughs>
1: well, no, I think so. I did a lot of work on my relationship during the pandemic as well. Um, because my partner and I got married. We were waiting to go to Vegas. That wasn't gonna happen, so we just decided, let's like take back what's in our control. We did a little Vegas-style chapel wedding here in Melbourne, not because of the pandemic, but just in general, like a very scaled-back ceremony, just us to not spend a lot of money because often people confuse the wedding for the marriage, and so we really wanted to make sure that we spent time kind of talking about our values and going through like workbooks and stuff like this and really focusing on, okay, not what is this day going to be like, but what is the rest of our life going to be like together? So definitely worked on my relationship as well. And we got married.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. I love the idea of those workbooks and going through, there's these wonderful Questions that you can get online. Like School of Life has a bunch of them. There's a bunch of different brands where essentially there are a bunch of prompts where, you know, after a date or just when you're hanging out, you can talk through your values and be prompted to have difficult or in depth conversations that might feel Cheesy or selfish, if I was going to talk about myself too much. But the cards give you an opportunity that's pretty rare, which is to express your feelings around things that not a lot of people care about or ask you about. And so I think uh, the idea of sitting there with a workbook talking about your future values and the life you want to build together is pretty romantic.
1: Yeah. And if you're, you know, scared about, I don't want to ask this question. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm ready for the answer, but you can say, well, the card's making me do it. It's not, I'm not asking it, it's the (laughs) card.
0: (laughs) Very cool. What's your next book?
1: My next book is Enlightenment Now. This is a nonfiction book by Professor Steven Pinker. And the basic argument of this book is it opens with this quote from Barack Obama that says, if you could choose to be born at any time in history and you don't know what country you're going to be born into, a wealthy or poor family, man or woman, you would indisputably pick today out of any date throughout human history. So then the book is basically then 500 pages of charts and stats and arguments about why this is true. So the author says in terms of all these different measures of quality of life, so like wealth, health, access to food, safety, democracy, human rights, knowledge, happiness, all these things over time are moving up and to the right. And they kind of crawled along in a positive direction for most of history, or at least like since the 1600s when we started measuring some of these things. Um, But since the industrial revolution, well, most of these measures have gone almost straight up for so many countries in the world. So things have just gotten so much incredibly better for quality of life of humans in the past hundred or so years. And he says that across some of these measures, poor people in the world today live better than the middle classes in pre-industrial Europe which is insane to think about um so this was great to read during the pandemic because the author also touches on obviously news and globalization that now we just know about every bad thing that happens in any corner of the world so it seems like the world is worse than ever so especially during the pandemic when you know so many arguments and people on both sides of all these different debates are trying to convince you The world is ending the sky is falling everything's terrible it was so nice to sit with this book get some perspective there's been so many wars and pandemics and terrible things that have happened throughout all of human history but we're generally moving in the right direction we're making so much progress and just feeling very lucky to be alive in this time
0: speaking of wars and pandemics i'm just gonna just jump right on and offer a counterpoint I think, uh, I don't know if it it brought up, there was this Chris Ryan book that I mentioned on the show because he was on the show called Civilized to Death. And there's a lot of literature that suggests that technology itself uh, has an interesting relationship to humanity. And when it first started pushing us into cities and things, one of the direct consequences, there's a lot of direct consequences. One is slavery. I mean, slavery became this en masse, also kind of totalitarian war where demolition of society and peoples all of a sudden became an aim, where there are these kind of pastoral claims that tribal cultures just sort of like chucked a couple stones at each other and uh, hey, good game buddies, and we went back to their camps or whatever. I don't know what the truth is, but I know that my number four (laughs) book, (laughs) I always like to bring a biography to these podcasts. I absolutely love historical biographies and the one that stuck out to me over the last two years is a book called Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar. One of the things that really strikes me about Stalin, more than any single person probably responsible for defeating Hitler's regime, Uh, but to say that he was a complicated character understates the issue quite a bit. Um, I think it's fair to say that Stalin was a thug, a gangster. A genius, a polymath, a lover of books and cinema, and a mass murderer. A incredibly interesting.
1: Is this his Tinder profile? <laughs> 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 I love books and movies, and I'm a mass murderer.
0: <laughs> I like, we like a good purge. Um, there's this wonderful movie that came out in 2018 called "The Death of Stalin." It's this comedy film, and there are these memes about the Soviet Union, you know, in Russia. And you mentioned these comical ideas of let's redefine gender, let's redefine group identity, let's redefine. Even recently, um, Putin gave an important speech where he was mocking the United States and their current confusion over issues of group identity and of wokeism and controlling what people can and can't say. And his basic point was, is Hey, in the Soviet Union, we have some experience with this sort of thing and uh, to read about it and to recognize that these things all happened less than 100 years ago under the watching eyes of our relatives, some of whom are still alive, is shocking. And in the context of the pandemic, it's worth keeping in mind how quickly things can change, whether for the positive. Or for the negative. And to reflect on that concept and also to learn a great deal about still what I think is the most important story in human history, World War II, and to understand what led to victory there. Stalin, The Court of the Red Czar, a stunning, stunning book.
1: My last book is Any Ordinary Day, which is by the Australian television journalist, Lee Sales. And this is nonfiction interviews interspersed with a bit of memoir by her And the title refers to when any ordinary day in your life turns into the worst day in your life because of some freak accident, terrorist attack, wrong place, wrong time. And she writes about many of these events that have happened in Australia. So living here, I found it really interesting to learn about these news events that I hadn't heard of before, like a hostage situation inside a chocolate cafe in 2014, a 1997 mudslide that killed almost 20 people a massacre in Tasmania and then a medical student who survived 43 days in the Himalayas all these really incredible and tragic stories and she says as a journalist she talks to people on the worst day of their lives when these events happen and they're all over the news. But then she wonders what happens when all the television cameras go away. So she goes back and she finds all the people that have been affected or lived through these events. And she asks them, how are you living? Like, how did you cope with this? And what's your take on life now versus before this happened to you? And it sounds like it could be a really depressing and dark book, but I think it's ultimately hopeful because you see that people do (laughs) come out the other side of it. And she said, when people hear about these freak accidents, They always say, I could never survive that. I could never live through that. I don't know how anyone would come out the other side. And so hearing from the people who do survive it and then go on to live a meaningful life is really inspiring. And I think a big lesson that she takes from it is that you really miss those ordinary days, those ones that might be considered boring. You've lived it a hundred times before. You're going to live it a thousand times in the future until it's taken away from you. So really trying to appreciate those really mundane moments in life.
0: I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022 and to help you do it we've got three exciting options for you to explore the first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime we've got a growing list of features there including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications we've also got our done for you service if you're sick of sorting assessing and interviewing you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit, or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, We can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash recruiting My final book is a business book, I'll say. It's the one that is the most businessy. The theme of the year, which we've talked about on the podcast, I talked about at DC, Mexico City, for me was getting back to the basics. Basically, I knew what we needed to do in order to grow our next business. It wasn't some big tip or some amazing strategy. It was about working hard on the right sorts of things in simple fashion every single day, simply showing up It was very inspiring to me to see that the best in the world do this too, that Kobe Bryant, for example, was absolutely obsessed with his footwork. The simplicity of how he moved his feet was the base for everything he did on the basketball court. And I was actually genuinely surprised as I was trying to become a better golfer during the pandemic. Uh, that Tiger Woods would do the same thing. So the next book is the best Tiger Woods biography. I've read them all, Kyla. (laughs) Here at your service, Tropic (laughs) 1BA listeners. It's called The Big Miss, My Years Coaching Tiger Woods. It's utterly fascinating in a world full of let's get hooked up to a computer. Let's look at our analytics. Let's talk about strategy. uh, Let's drink green shakes three times a day. That fundamentally... Tiger Woods focused on the things that even beginner golfers are loath to focus on, like alignment of toes, shoulders, and hips, of rebuilding the swing from the ground up, and that the greatest golfer of all time, by some margin, did those very basic things on a daily basis. And I found that inspiring because I don't always want to do those things when I show up to my desk as an entrepreneur. I want to find something clever to tweet on the internet. I want to read an article and say that it has business value. I want to redesign our website for the umpteenth time. But uh, sometimes doing the basics is what the greatest do, and I found that very inspiring. The big miss, my years coaching Tiger Woods. I will also mention, as hopefully we're on the tail end of the pandemic or at least achieving something of a new normal, that one of the lifelines for me during the pandemic was golf here in Texas. I have so many now lifelong friends and people that I talk to on a daily basis just because it was the only place I was able to meet new friends, new people was on the golf course. And so uh, I might have, I hesitate to say how many times I've been golfing in the past two years, but it's been a lot. And so uh, this was the best golf book that I read.
1: And how much has your golf game improved?
0: A lot. I'm proficient now. <laughs> Well, you did five, I did five, Mm -hmm. Um, one question I had for you. And then I just want to drop a lot of honorable mentions. A lot of people say that as the technology marches on, and now we have even more interesting apps on our telephones and there's even better television uh, designed to captivate our attention is how do you find time to read? And what's your answer to that?
1: I think it's definitely easier when I'm in when I'm reading a good book. I struggle sometimes when I'm reading a book that isn't really grabbing my attention. Um, and I think the ones that like you can't put down because you're turning the pages are a bit rare. So I can't say I'm only going to read those books. I do think there's value in sticking with a book, even if it's not. I mean, if it's bad, forget it. But if it's just kind of like better than average, I'll stick with it. Um, like last week, I was reading this book that really just had me gripped and I just wouldn't even open my laptop because I was like, this book is so much better than anything I could find on the internet. But now that I'm reading one that's like a little more middle of the road, I'm like, mm, what's, what's going on on YouTube? <laughs> so I don't know if that's helpful at all, but it's not easy for me. I still definitely struggle with it and especially, have gone through ebbs and flows during the pandemic where sometimes I was feeling very stressed about things and it was more difficult to concentrate on a book and then I would get really into reading for a stretch of time. So I feel like it's just kind of this natural cycle and it's not always perfect.
0: Yeah, I I thought of that when you mentioned going to the library that I think uh, books have this place in culture as There's almost like a moral attachment to it. How many books did you read? Or, you know, are you a reader and all this kind of stuff? And it's like, I think you should feel as confident disposing of a book as you do a YouTube video. And if you take that grazing approach or go to the library, when I was a kid, I used to check out 35, 25, 15 books regularly, and I would graze. I would just graze, graze, and then you find one that captivates your attention um, I love that strategy. It's also, I look at my list and there's not a lot of hard books on my list. Um, a lot of these are books that I'm listening to while I'm taking walks and I'm actually generating walks to listen. So it's it's sort of this uh, parallel thing where I love walking around. I love reflecting and thinking. And so I'm I'm listening to books as I generate walks or I'm going for lunch or I'm going to walk in some strange store where I have no intention to buy anything, but I just appreciate being in a weird department store and listening to a book about politics. Speaking of which, one book that really captivated my attention was Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency. This is an absolutely stunning book. My favorite book of the pandemic, Kyla, I didn't even list out yet, so I'm going to do it. This is from Taylor Pearson. It's called The Three-Body Problem. Uh, They are making a television series about it. My favorite genre of all time books are epics. And one of the interesting things about The Three-Body Problem, the three-part series, it's written by a Chinese author named Xinjin Liu. And it's a hard sci-fi book, which means, much like Andy Weir's book, Project Hail Mary, which is very good as well, its premise is that this is plausible. And the interesting thing about the three-body problem is that it's sort of a soup-to-nuts story of what it would be to encounter an alien civilization and what the whole story of the universe could look like with that initial narrative impetus of, Oh my gosh, there's an alien civilization coming to say, what's up? And like, we got to figure like, how would the earth react? So there's that kind of pandemic feel at the beginning where it's like, who's in charge? Like, is it China or America in charge? Or like, who's going to say what up when they show up? Like, are we going to let them stay for dinner? Like, what's the plan? And then how does it play out with the broader universe? How many other civilizations are there? How big is the universe? Um, And the author Tries to use established physics and science to attempt to tell a plausible story. And it's really, really compelling.
1: But those books are big. Like, that's its all, that's its all ask. I've been recommended this book by so many DCers and I've just never, never been able to pick it up. Maybe because sci fi isn't my genre, but I've heard it's good. I've heard it's really uh, one good. One
0: other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, we talked about uh, there's a lot of books aimed at men and women who are looking to improve their dating lives. And I've read a lot of those over the years, but there's also a full genre of books that are aimed at men and women looking to improve their relationships. And there's a really famous researcher named John Gottman. He's famous because he's the guy who trained people off the street to look at a married couple and decide within a 90% accuracy whether or not they're going to break up or not and now if you think that's crazy and unrealistic you all know it because you all have a friend who you see get married to someone you're like that's not gonna work like i'm totally right about this <laughs> and um john Gottman has written an amazing a he has a, a large library of books but one that really stuck out to me is called it has a bad title but it's called the man's guide to women um but i actually found it quite revelatory in some of the things he was speaking about um and creating a really positive frame for how to be a better man in a traditional relationship. So I thought that was another good one to point to. Also give a shout out to Jake Ryan, Crypto Asset Investing in the Age of Autonomy uh, was my favorite crypto related book, which I read a bunch. I really enjoy the way he dishes the goods, not just theory in terms of how to construct a crypto portfolio. And then one more relating to therapy. And number one of my deep dives was... A somewhat controversial book but I found really fascinating nonetheless. It's called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. We've all had negative experiences that sort of stick with us in ways that we can't quite understand. And this book helps to peel back some of the layers to how the body works in regards to negative and traumatic experiences and some options for people on how to heal and how to have a more positive state of mind going forward.
1: I forgot to do honorable mentions, but can pull some (laughs) quickly from my Goodreads list.
0: (laughs) So while you're doing that, I want to mention that I emailed producer Jane. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jane is a, a really big reader and writer as well. And I said, hey, what was one book that really stuck out to you? She said, The Second Sleep by Robert Harris. Uh, which is described by The Guardian as an elegant post-apocalyptic thriller on pandemic theme. Jane writes, producer Jane, here's a book that I really enjoyed during the lockdown. It's a novel set in dystopian future where an event called the apocalypse has plunged the world back into the dark ages. It's wonderfully claustrophobic and kind of mystical, which really suited that weird early COVID environment at the time. I was reading it where there was a 9 p.m. curfew in Thailand and the shelves were emptying at the 7-Eleven. Somehow it made the situation described in a novel more imaginable. It's also a mystery story which keeps you turning the pages. I think it's always a good sign when you can remember where you were when you read a book. And I remember looking forward to taking to the hammock on my balcony on a tropical island and entering this world, Robert Harris conquers of a gloomy British village in the depths of winter. So that's the second sleep by Robert. Harris, any other shouts you want to give here before we cut off the episode?
1: Yeah, I have a few. So my first one is The Least of Us. This is by Sam Quinones, I believe. So this is a follow-up to his book that I believe won the Pulitzer Prize, Dreamland. Um, And Dreamland was about how the um, opiate crisis gripped America with this intersection of big pharma and doctors prescribing all these pain medications told being told that they weren't addictive and also so many small towns dying in America and how that came to be. So this follow up, he looks into fentanyl, which is the new opiate that people use, which is a synthetic heroin. And it's interesting because Part of the reason that this became so popular is because it's so much cheaper and easier to make because you can create it in the lab instead of growing it. It kind of became like this FBA of drugs like you could just buy the ingredients you needed for fentanyl from China. It would be shipped to your house through like the postal service. And then you could just make it in your house as like a random person. It took the power away from these drug cartels in Mexico that controlled everything and really became this dispersed ecosystem. But then of course that meant that so many more people were getting hooked on this. And that's obviously very bad. And it's just an interesting follow up to the opioid crisis. Very cool. My next one is The Silent Listener by Lynn Yewart. And I've really gotten into this genre in Australia called Outback Noir, which is these mysteries and detective stories that take place in like the desolate, deserty outback of Australia where the heat is oppressive and nothing can grow um so i've read a lot of these books another good one is the dry by jane harper that's probably the most famous one that's been made into a movie but that's definitely a genre that i would recommend reading um this is another book i read in the lead up to my own wedding one perfect day the selling of the american wedding and this is by rebecca mead and this is a super fascinating look at how the wedding industrial complex has formed in the States. Um, You know, how diamonds were just invented by a jeweler who is good at marketing.
0: Diamonds are forever. (laughs) Yes.
1: It's not true love if you don't have a diamond. Um, And how, yeah, as soon as you say wedding, booking a reception hall goes from $3,000 to $20,000 and just kind of how this whole business came to be. So very fascinating from an entrepreneurial standpoint as well.
0: And one of the things I just want to ask you about before we go, but I'm just curious you know, you are now a resident of Australia and it's a place that I've never been. Um, I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about what it's like to live in Australia and for folks that have it on their wish list to come visit someday. What's your perspective uh, having spent a
1: few years there now? Yeah, um, I've definitely had a unique experience. Someone asked me the other day, oh, how are you enjoying Melbourne? And then they said, oh, forget it. (laughs) Because we had the longest lockdown in the world at like 280 days or something. Um, So it's definitely not been the city at its best in terms of culture and restaurants and everything. Um, But I have always enjoyed visiting Australia and I found, especially compared to the States, which is where I grew up, I feel like people are just more chill very friendly. I appreciate the healthcare system a lot. Um though the taxes are very high, which is the opposite side of that coin. I love the like the crazy animals and there's really crazy flowers here. Like still when I go on my daily walk with my dog, I'm always like That flower is so weird. It is so pretty. It's so bright. (laughs) Like two years into being here, I'm still amazed by like my surroundings and how beautiful and unique it is being on an island.
0: No, that's good. That was a really cool little vignette into uh, finding a new home. So Kyla Gardner, you always got a home here at the TMBA podcast. It's been too long. We appreciate you coming by (laughs) and uh, good luck continuing on with your fiction career. Can you let us know where we can find out more about you?
1: Yeah, I have like a little online business card at KylaGardner.com. Um, and that links to Kyla Sharp, which is my current pen name that I'm using.
0: Thanks for joining us on the TMBA pod, Kyla.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Big shout out to Kyla Gardner for dropping by the show. Links to all the books we mentioned and also our rereadable series, will be in the show notes. By the way, if you have a book related to business that you'd like us to do a rereadables readables on, I'd love to hear your suggestion. That's it for now. Check out Kyla's books on Amazon. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. We'll see you then.